Reparations. Welcome to Conversation Reparations, hosted by INCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. My name is Brother Jumoke Ifeitayo. I serve as your host and facilitator of these regular podcasts, coming to you on the first and third Monday, usually the first and third Monday of each month. Um, this, this episode, we're excited to bring you a special presentation on reparations through lineage lineage restoration. Rest, reparations through lineage restoration. And we're going to delve into some um, people of African descent who have traced their heritage back to Africa and understand that um, part of that process is the process of reparations and healing and repairing themselves and how they plan to do that, how they are doing that through them, through their reconnecting with their lineages, um, through their family line, all the way back to the continent of Africa. So we're very excited to bring to you on the line Brother Sipawe Baleka and Sister Latinia Channa. And um, so why don't you start out, Brother Sipawe, and just give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you came to um, connect with your family lineage history or your family lineage, I like to say, our story. Uh, all right. Thank you, um, Brother Jamoke. I'm glad to be here. <sighs> this way. In the 1760s, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Brasa Chabra, was ambushed as a young child captured and taken from his homeland in Nakra, which is modern-day Guinea-Bissau, trafficked across the Atlantic 
and brought to Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, again, I am the great, 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 great grandson uh, of Brasa and Chabra. And so our family has been held here in the land of Brasa and Chabra's captivity since the 1760s. Uh, and so in traditional African culture, I place myself in relation to my ancestors. So instead of saying, yeah, I'm born in Chicago, because now that I know, I start the story with with my ancestors. Um, but I was born in Chicago, raised by my father, um, have traveled the world and realized that I had to heal and repair my own identity crisis, which led me to take um, the African ancestry DNA test, discover my maternal and paternal lineages. And ever since then, I have been researching the history of my people, my, uh, doing genealogy work, and building an institution for lots of ancestors. Right. I have experience that is fundamental to reparations. Yeah, that's a, a phenomenal story. I, I know that many people, um, I, I've worked with some genealogists and have spoken and, and, and been to some genealogists, uh, black genealogists specifically, um, conferences and meetings and gatherings. <clears throat> and oftentimes I hear that people are able to um, trace their lineage only back as far as the plantation or a plantation, but not all the way back to Africa, like, you know, we know Alex Haley did and a few other people have done, but that's kind of rare that people, that you're able to trace your lineage back to the person who was captured and put on the boat to America. You want to share a little more about that story? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I can hardly overstate how profound it is. I mean, this is the very thing that was taken from us as a result of that middle passage. Mm -hmm. um, and while it is either rare or impressive now, um, when our work is successful, it won't be. Everybody, our goal is that every person claiming to be the descendant of someone that was trafficked and enslaved here will be able to know their own family history and connect it back to the family and the, the territory and the culture from which they came. This genetic testing is a new science. It really, for example, African ancestry, they started in 2003. So we are kind of still among what I call the early adopters, people that are taking this new technology, um, and utilizing it. And so there, there are many quote unquote Alex Haley's now. Um, but I hope that, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, millions of us will be able to tell the story like I just did. Awesome. awesome. All right. Um, and we're going to continue to unpack that some more and the significance of doing that work and how we're going to um, include that in our reparations package in a systematic way. We'll come back and impact that some more. Sister Latanya, Latina, you will give us just a little bit of background of who you are 
and how you come to be a part of this association and chasing your family lineage as well? Well, I'm uh, Latina Chana. I'm a senior Army instructor over at Roxborough High School in Philadelphia. And um, I I wanted to know, um, especially after my, my grandmother passed away in 2015, I wanted to know uh, more about the people I would hear about. She she was one with the oral tradition. She, she was a storyteller and she told me a lot of things, you know, and um, I, I well, who else in the country knows this stuff, you know? And uh, I started to have conversations with my cousin and um, his, his grandfather and my grandmother were sister and brothers. And he did some of the same things that I did. And uh, I got him to take the, the DNA test. And it came that we were Belanta from Guinea-Bissau. And I said, well, that makes sense, you know, because she would talk about a river. And I see there is a river in Guinea-Bissau um, with the kind of a similar name that, you know, that she would talk about. And um, Isabella, who, who I did find um, in, in my search also, you know. So it's, it, it's um, I can't explain it because I was good. I was good until... I realized until I hit the point where I realized, okay, so mother and father, the same name, one name, and that's a slave owner. Until I hit that point, you know, uh, it was, it was, I don't know, mixed feelings there. Very, very mixed feelings, you know, because that's when it kind of hit home. They were property. They were property. Not not people, not human beings, not property, you know. So I I don't know exactly how I got on to um, the organization. Um, I think I was just kind of searching for things, and I just came across it because I, I started to search. And the more I searched, the more I wanted to search, and the more I saw, the more I wanted to know. So I'm I'm on a learning adventure right now. Awesome, awesome. Well, you have some your story is similar to Alex Haley's story too, because <laughs> you know, that was part of how the story was passed down was through the oral tradition, and then you know there was the river of you know I think it was called the Candy Belongo, and he remember it was you know passed down, and and that's that's really phenomenal. So and both of y'all are very powerful. Stories in terms of chasing your family lineage, um, that's that's great. So yeah, why don't you tell us, um, Brother Sipaway, tell us a little bit about the organization and and what's the mission of the organization and how again it, it's uh, part of the reparations movement. So I am the founder and president of the Balanta Brasa History and Genealogy Society in America. This, uh, our institution was set up um, to provide um, assistance for everyone that took a DNA test and discovered either their maternal or paternal ancestry. Uh, if their results came back as being from the Balanta people, we wanted to have an organization that would help them 
do genealogy and history research so that they could, um, you know, be able to tell their stories. Once we set up that, um, that institution, you know, once you get this information, eventually you, you, you don't want to just read about it in books. Eventually you want to go and visit your ancestral homeland. So several of our members started doing that. And in the process of doing that, we built networks among the Bavanta people in Guinea-Bissau, um, very close networks. Uh, and we started to consult with the government to help them prepare what we call the Decade of Return Initiative um, so that not only um, Balanta descendants, but all the descendants whose ancestors come from Guinea-Bissau, Manjaco, Bijago, um, Mandinka, Nola, uh, Jola, uh, Fula, there are several. So we started consulting with the government on, you know, uh, heritage tourism, development work, those kinds of things. Now, in the process of doing that, we started to work with other um, ethnic groups. So people that took the DNA test and discovered that they were Temina from Sierra Leone. Well, when we found out that they were doing the same work that, that we were doing, they were doing that work and organizing themselves. The Bamilike from Cameroon. Every group was at some stage of trying to organize, organize and institutionalize and do the same kind of work. And so um, those who were the driving force behind those efforts, we got to know one e each other. And we started realizing that we were part of a movement. There are now half a million African-Americans that have taken this one particular test, five, more than 500,000 people, and that um, it was having a tremendous transformation power. Uh, people were reorganizing their lives. They were reconnecting to Africa and doing really great work in Africa. So we realized that we could harness this energy and, and channel it and bring it to the next level by formulating what we now have as our lineage restoration movement, um, which from our perspective is the very important work of reparations. If you take that word and we really start to understand the fundamental concept behind reparations is that the effect of our experience, right, of the, the crime of genocide that has been committed against us, well, that, that has damaged us. And so, hence, the justice requires repair. And the repair is not primarily the financial debt that is owed to us very significantly. But we, when you look at repair, you have to ask the condition repair to what? What was the condition before the damage? And we have, we've clearly started to articulate this. An individual, someone in your family, right, was captured and trafficked and survived the Middle Passage. That individual came from a specific family that lived in a specific community or village in a specific territory that spoke a specific language and practiced a specific culture. 
So the repair work that must be done is each of us must be reconnected to those specifics, the land you were taken from, the, the language that your ancestors spoke, and the culture. Per, prior to the DNA testing, most of us were not able to identify those things. Now we have a new tool. Now we have a new weapon that we can use. Yes, definitely. Um, we definitely um, stand in, in support of that. I think that, you know, the and COBRA supports the idea of people taking the DNA test so they can reconnect to their heritage as a part of a reparations demand. That is definitely a part of our reparations demand. And not just taking the test, but, you know, as you have demonstrated, you know, really providing resources so people can reconnect and travel back to their place and learn of the culture and the spirituality of the land, of the place that they came from. And I know I even hear some people say they're not necessarily interested in finding out where they came from per se, but either way, if you, I, I think it's important for some of us to begin to do that, but even, even more of us to do that. But even if you choose not to, it's still important for us to understand, like you said, what happened to us, what, we, what are we repairing ourselves back to, not to being... Um, more successful Americans, but the damage that was done to us was that we were stripped of our culture and our languages and our our, um, our homelands, our sacred spaces and places. And that's what part that has to be a, a central part of us restoring ourselves and repairing ourselves. So, Sister Latina, uh, have you been to Guinea-Bissau yourself and had a chance to reconnect? No, I have not been to Guinea-Bissau. Um, okay. I've done work in um, Iberia and Sierra Leone. As okay. I'm in. So, um, but I have not been to Guinea-Bissau. Okay. Ha- have you all uh, uh, connected with people from that, you know, that have, let's say, recent arrivals from, from Guinea-Bissau that now live in the United States? So. Are they connecting with the uh, um, association? Yes. So a lot of them live um, in the northeast coast. Um, Mm -hmm. And this was how we initially sort of established our connection to Balanta in Guinea-Bissau. You know, we... our Our first members that were going back were looking for information. Uh, And so they would ask questions on the internet or Facebook. um, And some of that community that you referred to um, were able to answer our questions and and put us in contact with people. And that's how the the network started to to build. Yes, yes. I know. Yeah, I know there's lots of different um, African associations and and um, I don't know, and some of us, I think, have, as Pan-Africanists have probably done an okay job at, at connecting with them, and I think we probably could do a lot better job. I know, for example, in Atlanta, I'm sure replicated in other places, you have so many different um, groups, uh, associations of different different African association groups. And um, so, yeah, that makes sense that, you know, as we begin to uh, – as we begin to do our DNA and find out where we're from, you know, probably the first step would be out take connecting with them even before we began to travel um, back to Africa. 
Well, you know that you know that expression, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. Okay. So in our case, um, our members once they became really interested in going back to Guinea-Bissau. In our case, it was extremely challenging because one, Guinea-Bissau is a very small country. It's only one point. The population is only one point in the million. And Guinea-Bissau does not have diplomatic relations with the United States. There's no embassy. Traveling mm-hmm. to Guinea-Bissau is, until recently, was extremely difficult. And, um, you know, the United States puts out information and travel warnings. It's one of those countries they say is dangerous, don't go to, avoid traveling to the country mm-hmm. politically. You know, they put all this fear out there. So our members found it difficult to find out even how to get visa information, basic mm. travel information. So um, once that, you know, interest, you know, once the general interest in Africa is transformed into a burning passion to reconnect with your ancestors, um, in our case, we had to turn to sort of that immigrant uh, community from Guinea-Bissau that's in the United States to get the ball rolling because the resources that are there for popular countries like Ghana or South Africa or Egypt or Ethiopia, they just weren't there. So it was really necessity. Um, It wasn't sort of this abstract interest in Pan-Africanism like, hey, it'd be a good idea we connect with some people in Africa. No, we had a real need. And that brought mm-hmm. us to their doorstep. I was thinking um, that some people may not be familiar with some of the history of of Guinea-Bissau, why it's not uh, a favorite country by the United States, <laughs> and some of the history of, you know, our great legendary uh, Amilcar Cabral and the yes. um, PARGC um, movement there in um, Guinea-Bissau and, and Cape Verde. Um, you maybe should share a little bit of that with us. Um, sure, just, with. just briefly. Um, so the Balanta people are not indigenous to Guinea-Bissau. Um, they and several groups, they, they migrated to Guinea-Bissau, which is right there on the west coast, just below Senegal. Um, Several groups migrated there because of the oppression of the Mali Empire during the 10th and 14th centuries. So you have a lot of um, non-state or stateless societies uh, that were free and independent living in this area when the Portuguese arrived in 1456. Um, and ever since then, they have been waging a relentless struggle against the Portuguese and after them, the French and the English. Um, in the late 1960s, the mid or to late 1960s, um, they initiated an armed liberation struggle and against all odds, after 11 years, defeated the Portuguese, kicked them out and gained their independence 
um, which was just celebrated uh, on, on the 24th of this month. So it was the 47th Independence Day. Um, so being a small country, you know, it doesn't get the attention of like Mau Mau in Kenya or uh, Nkrumah in Ghana um, or even the apartheid struggle in South Africa. It doesn't get that kind of attention, but it did produce arguably the most brilliant revolutionary theorist whom you mentioned, which was Amilcar Cabral. Mm-hmm. But if I could, Jamoke, um, I wanted to go back to something that you said um, when we were talking about the genetic testing and you were starting to allude to why it was important. Um, and this is connected to what I consider to be the, the, the spiritual aspect of it. Um, and you had asked me about my background. So I studied philosophy and physics at Yale University. So I've always had an interest in sort of energy and how the universe works, which dovetails into spirituality. And there is a new science called epigenetics, which is talking about the science of our genetic memory. Mm -hmm. And what I have become convinced of, I can't prove it, can't measure it yet, but what I've become convinced of is this. Every experience that we have takes place in a location, meaning a, a setting, a land, a territory, mm-hmm. and that experience, we're receiving all this information through our senses, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we smell, all of that. All of that information is processed in our brain and our in with concepts and words. Oh, this made me feel happy. This made me feel jealous. This made me feel uh, inspired. Um, this is this is America. This is Guinea Guinea Bissau. So we we take all this information and we organize it according to location, which has its own energy field, its own vibration, and language. And through those two modalities. Every experience we have is encoded in our DNA. That means in order to unlock that genetic memory, you have to have the language. So in my eyes, what part of the damage that occurred to us was they stole the key that we need to unlock our genetic memory, which is contained in the language. So if you can't identify not just where you came from, but who you came from and what language they spoke, you're going to be limited in your ability to unlock that genetic memory. And that process is enhanced when you actually go to the land where those the bulk of those memories were encoded. And this is why going back to your ancestral homeland and performing rituals in the language can have this profound spiritual transformation that I'm talking about. If your ancestors came from, for example, Senegal, but you're returning to Ghana or you go to Egypt or South Africa, you're not getting it. Hmm. Yeah, that's, um, 
Yeah, I appreciate you breaking that down in that way. You know, we, we, we have talked on, on various shows around um, transgenerational epigenetics, and we primarily have talked about it, um, um, and, and we even talked about it um, at our national convention as well. But we primarily talk about it from the, just primarily, I guess, from the deficit aspect of it, meaning that we, you know, we assert that, you know, when someone experiences a, a traumatic Mm-hmm. Um, situation and it is it, like you said it gets encoded in their dna and it also begins to um i guess we could say weaken or, or or impact their dna in a negative way and then that gets passed on down to their children and their children and their children and so we people of african descent having been traumatized from the time that our villages were attacked to the enslavement period through the the trial on the boat on the ships to here and, and continuing the trauma, whether it's, you know, um, um, George Floyd and on and on and on, such that we know that we, we it, it makes sense that people of African descent are in this country are, you know, ha- are more susceptible to different diseases, um, including COVID-19 or dying at a higher rate because of what they call pre-existing conditions. And I said, well, we have to ask the question, well, why do we have higher rate of pre-existing conditions? And and that goes back to the trauma and the um, epigenetics, the transgenerational epigenetics that gets passed down. But I appreciate you putting it in a different context in terms of how some of the healing can begin can happen when we reconnect with the language and with the culture of our people to, to um, I guess, to begin to heal the DNA strand in, in, our, um, in our bodies. And, and hopefully, ideally, we would pass that down as well to our children. And those, not ideally, scientifically, it would get passed down to our children and their children and their children. So, yeah. So yeah, that was um, appreciate appreciate that. Um, yeah, you make me want to go out there and get my DNA test like tomorrow now. <laughs> well, th- this is the reason why I was grateful that you invited me on your show because we had talked privately, and what I realized was we have to create and show the value. So, um, yes. The initial research in epigenetics was based off of exploring the trauma. And a lot of that research started with the the study that talked about the Holocaust victims and survivors. But I started to think about that, and I'm saying, well, wait a minute. Trauma is this extreme negative experience. What's the – so if if an extreme experience – if we've shown that it, it is in fact encoded and expresses itself and then af- affects our reality, well, the opposite or the corollary to trauma would be something like joy or inspiration, mm-hmm. an equally but opposite you know, experience. And so when we discover fire or when we discovered agriculture or whenever we solved a problem, in the African continent and we develop these new concepts that we know came from us. There's a sense of achievement, of joy, of wonder, of accomplishment. It is equally encoded. Like I said before, the the thing is, is we have the research that shows or at least indicates the trauma aspect, 
nobody's ever thought to look or do a project to show what I'm talking about. So we can't prove it yet, but it stands mm-hmm. to reason that it's it's like yin and yang or balance in the universe, ma'at, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have mm-hmm. one without the other. So if trauma is encoded, so are all the positive stuff. We need to understand that we can get that. Did you want to add to that, Sister Latina? Or did you chime in with a mm-hmm? <laughs> I, you know, um, I think that that's, that's one of the things that, that we don't spend enough time doing, you know, um, looking at the positive connections. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the high school, so I'm with ninth to 12th graders all day long. Mm-hmm. And just their, their general worldview their outlook on life is is just very very negative. It's you know it, it's not inspiring. It's not positive. You know a lot of a lot of them don't have a positive outlook on themselves or their future or anything. And um, I think I, I actually want to do this project um, with the kids. We're going to be looking into. Section 27 at Arlington Cemetery, which was Friedman's Village, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to do a, a storyboard on that to get that through Congress and, you know, have these things put in the history books where they're supposed to be. And I want to do uh, a DNA on, on one girl and one boy from the class, you know, so that we can follow that, follow it through, you know, so they mm-hmm. can know what it feels like to way through so then then they will become interested in that and find out people did you know where they were who they were the town that they built what they you know what i mean all of this because we don't hear about these things and the kids don't know about them so you can't be inspired by something you never heard Mm -hmm. you know so i i want to bring all of these things to light you know, we, we 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 tend to say, okay, well, we, we have people that came from Jamaica because my people came from Jamaica. Okay, we came from Jamaica. Okay, but you know what? You came from someplace else before that. Right. <laughs> you knew something else before that. You came from a civilization, you know, with a language and a life. And then I look at um, how when we talk about um, repatriations and, and all of these things and and going back, we, we, we have now to bridge two contexts. We have to bridge those things because the Africans haven't lived our life and we haven't lived their life. So we have to bridge those two things. You know, that a place has to be prepared. You yeah. know, that's the, it's the direction that you're going. A place has to be prepared and people have to be prepared. So you need to change strategy on how that's going to happen and what that what is that going to look like. And when you go, what are you going with? You know, we're in the United States. We, there's education here. There's so many different things here. What are we going with? What are we going with to add to the society? Problems they have enough of. What are we going with to build? Mm-hmm. You know, look at those type of things. You know, it's not all about money. Sometimes it's just about the willingness to go and and, and put your put your hand next to your neighbor's hand and do something. Mm-hmm. 
Jumoke, can I can I make one further point on the spiritual healing <laughs> reparation part of it that's related to this? Okay. Okay. So from the traditional African concept, okay, when we talk about existence or we talk about family, by definition, a priori, it includes the ancestral realm, which mm-hmm. is every bit alive as our physical earthly realm insofar as energy is neither created nor destroyed. So when the physical body dies, the energy, the spirit, the soul, whatever you want to call it of the ancestor, is still alive in an invisible world, okay? And traditional African spirituality is based on knowing and experiencing that living connection, okay? Um, The... Uh, the colonizers, the Europeans, they use the term ancestor worship because they misunderstood our spirituality. They thought that we are somehow fetishizing the dead. But what we were doing, um, I like the term ancestor science because there's an actual cause and effect mechanism that governs the energetic relation in the same way that You can't see TV or radio waves, but they're traveling through your house right now, and they're real. You can't see or touch them, but they're real, and they operate according to universal laws and principles. So by the same science, our connection and communication with the ancestors operates on these universal laws and principles. They understand that on the African continent still today, but those of us in America, we don't. We've been brainwashed with a concept and a Christianity and all of that that has severed us from that. But the point that I want to make is the connection between the ancestors and ourselves is mediated through the blood and the breath, meaning the life force energy that each of us listening right now has is somehow contained in the blood or the breath. You can lose a finger, you can lose a toe, an ear, a leg, an arm. You can even do damage to your brain. But if the heart ever stops beating and circulating the blood, and if the lungs ever cease to function and stop circulating the breath, your existence in the physical realm is done. That blood and the breath that we have is literally the blood and breath that you got from your mother and father. And likewise, the blood and breath of your mother and father is the blood and breath that they got from their parents. Because if that had ever ceased before you were born, you wouldn't be here. So it's true to say that each living being is literally carrying the blood and the breath and the life force energy of all of their ancestors. And as a result, from the ancestor realm, they have an incentive uh, to keep that blood and breath to continue. And so they actually worship us because we're the custodians of their life force energy. And this is the reason why they want to communicate with us, give us what we call intuition or ideas or use some of the omnipotence and omniscience of the universe to help us succeed in 
in life. So my point about the reparations is this, right? By unlocking the, the, the genetic memory and by reconnecting with the ancestors and being able to communicate with them is a faculty that was taken from us that we can restore. So I would tell the children in, in Latina's programs, I, I would teach them to say, look, it's like having superpowers to be able to communicate in another realm to get information. That sounds fantastical to us. And when we see the forms of it in various African rituals, because we don't understand the science behind it, we, we don't understand the ritual. And for a lot of us, it just freaks us out. And we've been brainwashed to actually have a negative response. We don't understand why slaughtering a chicken and releasing the, the life force energy of that chicken nourishes the energy of the ancestor that we're performing the ritual for. We don't understand that. We need to regain that. And when we do, we get an additional faculty to complement our intellects, but it's a non-intellectual faculty that we can develop. All right, you went in deep on us right there, brother. <laughs> I was powerful and beautiful, though, you know, I am a, uh, yeah, I was not, I was, I'm, I'm trying not to, <laughs> sometimes when we have these conversations, it's, it's, it's you know, I, I, I think about, again, maybe it's a European model, and I'm trying to rationalize it for myself now, like, you know, there's this thing, I guess, that when when you interview people, you supposed to be, I guess, somewhat, I guess, uh, uh, objective, right, uh, neutral, and you're supposed to, you know, listen to their story and pull out their story. But it's like, you know, reparations. This work is so is so personal for me. Like, you know, maybe if I was interviewing somebody talking about something else, it would be different. But it's like sometimes it's so challenging not to. Um, you know, um, bring in my um, experiences and my thoughts around around this stuff. You know, um, so much that we could say in terms of the um, the ancestors and the um, African spirituality and African culture, which I think is our, our, our real, real power that we have that we haven't tapped into. Which I say is that's the. There we go. Gosh, I wasn't trying to not go there. Anyway, let's do this. <laughs> let, let me. I'm gonna do this since we. I, I was debating whether or not. I know you. Uh, we, we had a couple of video, uh, a couple of clips set up, um, and and one is just some African drumming from a ceremony where you were um, welcome home, brother. People wait okay. for um, talking about our ancestors. Let's bring in the ancestral language of the drums, and let's go ahead and and listen to some of that clip, brother. Um, Elliot, can we um, play the first clip?
me is one thing also, which is a language, is one of those things that I also believe um, is one of those things that can heal our DNA and it heals our spirits and heals our, our wounded psyche every time we hear the um, African drums. So I thought it was appropriate since we've been talking about it so much and going into that. And uh, what I was debating with, I wanted to share, and I think it's important, you know, is that, you know, after I was involved with Encopa for a while, I was just thinking, you know, looking through what I call the African spiritual lens, the African traditional lens, the African um, man, and saying, what, you know, how would we go about uh, reparations from, you know, African um, traditional perspective? And, and I thought about, well, we wouldn't use the European court systems and legislation and those things. We would go to our temples, we would go to our, um, and we use these European words, but our shrines, our spiritual um, leaders, our priests and priestesses, and, and ask them to, and, and even ourselves, tap into our own ancestral, as you mentioned, our own ancestral wisdom um, that we can tap into to find out how do we move reparations forward. And so in that vein, I added another uh, committee to Encobra, which is called the Ashe Committee, and that's the role of the Ashe Committee is to um, tap into our spiritual um, power and ancestral power that we have in order to bring reparations um, closer and closer into the manifestation. And um, so, yeah, that's the the work that that is necessary and. Um, because again, like I said, I think it's the most powerful tool that we have in our arsenal to use, and um, it's the one that is in alignment with who we are. And so, again, I think I heard Sister Natanya um, wanting to chime in again and bring you <laughs> back in the conversation as we come to a close and bring in some your closing remarks or reflections of what we've been speaking about. Well. Um... I think that the the fight continues. The fight continues. The battle continues. And um, it's important that it's consistent. Very important that it's consistent. The world, or I should say this nation, counts on us not being consistent. They say, oh, well, if they make noise long enough, sooner or later they'll stop. They, because we don't follow through very well. So consistency has to be there. And um, I wrote something down earlier today. It says the wrongdoing is an unbroken chain. The remedy should also be an unbroken chain. The work has to be consistent. And the bloodline will never be denied. Mm. I see. Well... I believe that what we what we have to do is to I think be better custodians at telling our story because um, there really has been an unbroken link and chain of people um, calling for demanding reparations and restoration from before slavery ended all the way up to today and uh, people may or may not be so much always aware of those the the, the stories in, in in the different eras and different leaders and organizations that were doing that. And I do agree with you, though, sometimes on the personal level, though, it gets challenging to, 
to continue to be consistent in this in this fight in this in this work that we have to do because we have so many life challenges and personal challenges in our lives that you know it makes it challenging for people sometimes to stay consistent but definitely consistency will win the day yeah um, yeah a question do you have mm-hmm. apprentices do you have young people that follow you your apprentices the ones that are coming up behind you <laughs> that's a very good question um i my probably the short answer I would say is no. However, I would it, the caveat I would add to that is though that I have worked with young people and I'm always continuing to um, identify young people that are willing to be um, mentored and learn more about um, reparations movement and get more involved in the reparations movement. Uh, the challenge is for to me is that that you know that. Uh, mentor relationship, and we don't like to use the word mentor. I know there's different, some people have different uh, issues with using that word, but that relationship of um, working with uh, younger people sometimes can be challenged on, on in terms of their desire and consistency on uh, and understanding, you know, that this is a, a marathon and not a sprint. And so, um, but I, I, I definitely, um, I'm always looking for, and when I do identify, I work very diligently to to uh, support young people in learning about reparations and, 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 and giving them information so that they can continue to be more powerful and effective and stay consistent in this movement. Wow. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> if you got some young people you want to send, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Matter of fact, um, you may not be aware. You know, we um, at our uh, this year at our convention, um, we decided to focus on young people, um, and I was really proud of that because there's a lot of you know conferences and conventions and webinars and everything that happened uh, you know during this cycle uh, um, with COVID coming in and everything, and and you know people some people you know some things didn't happen and even some and then in other instances there was more stuff that even happened you know, virtually and stuff like that. But anyway, we, we made a concerted effort to focus in on young people for our convention this year to um, identify young people, youth activists, and um, and I'll say young people, um, really 40 and under, and um, to get them more involved in the reparations movement. We actually, the convention was primarily um, uh, three days, and two of those days we focused in on, we're focused focus just on the youth and, and youth uh, leadership and, and reparation and getting young people more involved in the reparation movement. So now we just have to continue to follow up with them in in, in that um, from the convention. Mm, okay. Brother Sipuay? Yes, Faye. Still with us. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're coming to a close. So, um, you know, I, it was one of the other stories I was going to share. And I said, I was, uh, I'm just going to be me and just, you know, it's, it's just going to be me and be authentic. So <laughs> oftentimes when, when when I give people an example of uh, reparations or, or a particular reparations demand, one of the examples that I use is language. 
And sometimes I feel like that doesn't really resonate with people because people are thinking, you know, mostly monetary, like you said, or, you know, yep. med and all of that. And, and then, you know, but I, language and the way you really broke it down just makes me feel like even more so that that's one of the key, um, you know, reparations demands. You know, I kind of break it down and say, well, what was one of the injuries? And one of the injuries was we lost the ability to speak our native languages. So what would be the remedy? We would, you know, have to, you know, learn how to speak our native languages again. Um, what would be the process of doing that where we could set up, you know, different types of um um, learning um, centers for people to learn languages, again, connect with continental Africans who still speak their languages, particularly in larger urban cities that, you know, we could create these learning centers where they could help us to learn and practice the different languages. And, you know, what would be, you know, the cost, you know, associated with um, investing in, you know, to the point where every single African person of African descent ends up, you know, being fluent in an African language and how long would that take, you know, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, or two generations or whatever. And that's one of the, the examples that I often use. And like I said, sometimes I even question myself, it's like, is that a relatable? Are people like, you know, language, you know, is that a reparations demand? But, um, you know, I just, actually I'm feeling more um, edified in using that as an example now with our discussion today. So I'll let you um, close us out and um, on our discussion today, if you want to tell us a little bit more about the organization, how people can get connected with your organization. Um, and I also just wanted to make sure, well, I know we, I think you mentioned it before, that uh, is African Ancestry the particular DNA uh, group that you uh, recommend to our, our people? Um, I know that's one that I've been recommending. Yeah, if you... Um... If, you, if you're going to take just one DNA test, there are many different kinds using different sciences that measure different things. If you want to actually find out who are the people, the tribe, the actual people who you descend from, you're going to want to take the African ancestry test. That's the only one. They're not going to tell you, oh, you came from West Africa or you came from the <laughs> Congo. They're going to actually tell you your DNA right matches with the dna of these this specific or this combination of people okay so it's the african ancestry so in closing let me do this okay because at the risk you know i I went off and like you said some deep spiritual stuff so at the risk of losing the audience who in their mind reparations has to do with the finance let me bring it back to that and, and and sort of show why this is important one of my mentors once told me they said look if you don't have integrity and wisdom in your personal character, what is often called success can be damaging for you. If you get a lot of money or a lot of power, but you haven't developed your, your character, integrity, and wisdom, you will misuse those things, right? You can be in a situation where you, 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 you commit crimes. You do things that hurt yourself and other people that are going to ruin your future even though, you know, you got the money or you got this position, you got power. So part of the repair is collectively, we have to be honest about if we're saying we need reparations because we're damaged, then that means collectively we have uh, our collective character is damaged. 
So we have to improve that if we're going to utilize any resources that we get. Now, the advantage of doing lineage restoration, the financial advantage is a couple. First and foremost, there are monies and programs and resources available through the paradigm of what they call heritage preservation, which our communities, are, 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 we're not tapping into them because until now, we couldn't identify our heritage. We either appropriated fictitious heritage or we tried to use the, the collective mass African-American heritage, which doesn't work so well in these programs. As soon as you can identify your ethnic heritage, right, and institutionalize it, for example, we are now teaching the history of Balanta people in America. This is a history that was never known before and never taught before. And now we can preserve it and we have access to those kinds of programs and funding. The second financial um, uh, um, opportunity is that um, when we do get access to finances, okay, um, Again, the African context is it's not just you as an individual. The damage you're trying to repair is actually the crime that was committed against the ancestor that was captured. They are in the ancestor realm somewhere, and their soul, their spirit isn't at rest because of the trauma they suffered. Now, if your goal is to repair that so that you can get your blessings, et cetera, et cetera, and you go back to your home country, and you go to those villages, now you're seeing the conditions in those villages. You're seeing they need wells. They need, you know, basic things. And you now are more, instead of being concerned with building a better coffee shop in the city or investing business-wise to build some real high-end real estate in a city that's already developed, now all of a sudden, whatever resources that you have for investment, not only are they helping you, they're actually going to help your actual people in the rural villages who need the development more than anyone else who are missing out. And so without this lineage restoration and without this framework, we might – let's say we did get a big reparation settlement, right? Without this level of consciousness, most of it will not transfer into mutually beneficial um, – development on both sides of the Atlantic. A lot of it will just simply be, since we're consumers over here and we're not properly set up, we won't circulate it. I know there's the criticism reparations moving off and gets, but it won't circulate. It'll go right back into the economy. And then we'll be in a worse position because the white supremacy establishment will say, well, we gave you reparations. We wash our hands of it. We're, we've, we've done our duty. So without this lineage restoration consciousness how would we use any finances to do the real work that is needed to develop the base in africa which we need to be independent so um i will probably maybe we can do another show at another time and i can deal more specifically with the with the financial aspect and how it's related but i, I wanted to put that out there and i think that was uh very well done to bring us all the way back to, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would like to um, thank, you've been listening to Conversation Reparations, uh, a show brought to you by Encobra, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. Our topic for today has been reparations through 
lineage restoration. Um, I'd like to thank our guest, Sister Latina Chana, as well as Brother Sipaway Baleka, uh, who are part of an organization called, help me out, Baleka Brahman. Balanta. Yeah, Balanta Brasa History and Genealogy Society in America, which is part of the lineage restoration movement. Thank you. And, um, yeah, so we will, again, if you'd like to find out more information about Encobra, you can reach us at encobraonline.org, N-C-O-B-R-A, encobraonline.org. You would like to reach me in terms of get me to for topics, ideas, or support in Cobra. Like to reach me directly, you can reach me at reparations J reparations the letter J at gmail dot com. Uh, my number is six seven eight four three seven seven eight eight two. Again, that's six seven eight four three seven seven eight eight two. Again, you've been listening to conversation reparations conversation reparations. Conversation reparation. Slavery, I can't ignore the torture, but you can't put a price on the pain or the horror. And they ain't done nothing for the poor of actions, be for themselves, and inaction is the gag order. But I ain't waiting on dudes.